Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Very, very happy to catch up with Bill Winters right now of Standard Chartered. Bill, we've got to start with the topic, the story of the moment. Can you take us inside the bank and tell us how difficult it is right now to keep talent happy, to retain talent, to keep staff on your side? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a big challenge. And we know that the great resignation is it's touching every industry, it's touching every part of the world. <clears throat> and we, we are speculating endlessly on, on what's driving this. Uh, is it lifestyle changes on the back of the pandemic? Is it the, the fact that the, the world is flush with cash uh, and that cash is, is looking for ever greater talent? But thankfully for, uh, for, for Standard Chartered, uh, while we, we are above the, the, the trough levels of attrition in 2020, where things really, people just slowed down, 2021 was kind of back to normal in terms of, of levels of attrition. Uh, of course, we needed to pay up, uh, but we've also found ways to save money in other areas uh, so that net, net, net our expenses were, were more or less flat. And we haven't reported our full year earnings yet, but up to the third quarter, we're more or less flat year on year. And uh, and I, I would hope that we could continue with that trend. I find the savings to, to pay for ever more pricey talent. How sticky are these forces right now? Bill, how sticky do you think they are? I think there's a hope in the C-suite on Wall Street that this is a one-off story, pay up, walk away, we don't do this again next year. How sticky do you think it is? I, I think they're as sticky as the profits are sticky. So it's, it's been an extraordinary year in uh, in some aspects of the markets, and you saw it from from, uh, from the U.S. banks that have already reported. The investment banking fees uh, have, uh, have been fantastic. Uh, is that going to carry on? You know, the fixed income business is uh, is also doing relatively well, but not as well as it did during the, the peak of the pandemic. I think if, if profits are up, wages are going to be up. That's the way it works on Wall Street. Bill, how do you lift revenue? How do you lift the share price? You've had a nice rebound here recently. You're nowhere near the pandemic level with an EM exposure that you have, with the Hong Kong exposure that you have. What is the strategy to jumpstart to growth? Yeah, that's the big question. And look, we're, we're, we are uh, releasing our earnings in about a month. And as part of that, we'll be, we'll be sharing our story with, with how we accomplish exactly that, which is a couple of bits of backdrop. I mean, we know on the one hand, uh, emerging markets, China in particular, is out of favor with investors, uh, in particular with equity investors. Uh, so that, that clearly has an impact on our share price and others who have a heavy Chinese uh, component. On the other hand, we know that these are the drivers of global economic growth. As, as, we, as we look at China, uh, with a uh, with a probably slightly above expectations, but still quite low four percent GDP growth in, in the first quarter. You say, wow, that's that's uh, that's pretty tough relative to the five six seven percent that we've become accustomed to in China. But four percent is still pretty good in the global context, and uh, especially given the challenges that China faced in the early part of the year. And that will extend across Asia as we work through the pandemic effects and the like. But overall, uh, the, the way that we uh, lift profits is to continue to grow as we have been. We've been growing consistently now for several years. Right. If we could exclude that, uh, that that impact of low interest rates, which is a which is a real uh, has a very high impact on the banking industry and us in particular. Yeah, Bill, your website on Hong Kong, where you are hugely predominant, says here for good. Great. There is no banker more qualified to tell us about the potential move from Hong Kong to Singapore. Can you predict Western banks, the more larger commercial banks, are going to be forced to jettison Hong Kong for other geographies, including your Singapore? 
I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the long story short is that Hong Kong has been and is ever more so the entry point to China. It's the, it's the place that capital goes into and out of China. And, as, and it's very much a two-way street now. As we see, there's been massive uh, flows, in particular into bond funds over the past couple of years in China, in, uh, less so into equity funds. Uh, that will probably balance out over time. But there's also been a very substantial flow of Chinese money out. And that's only going to accelerate with the advent of things like the, the Wealth Connect program, which is designed to allow Chinese savers to, uh, to increase the proportion of their savings that they can hold in currencies other than RMB. And that's going through Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is, is, is absolutely solidified. If anything, it's, I think it's in the strongest position it's ever been in terms of acting as a gateway for capital in and out of China. Given the, the flows of capital, that's a pretty good gateway to have. Now, Singapore also has tremendous advantages, we know, and, and, and Singapore is, uh, is, is uh, trying to make itself as attractive as possible for not just international talent, but also the, the, the regional talent and then Singaporean talent, and they're doing a very good job of that. So yeah, a bit of healthy competition, we figure, is a, is a good thing. We, as you, as you point out, have a very substantial presence in both markets. We intend to continue to have a substantial presence in both markets, uh, and, and we'll do everything we can to make each of them more attractive. Bill, where's the biggest growth opportunity for you, especially given the fact that certain companies are thinking about diversifying supply chains globally? Yeah, the, 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 the biggest source of growth, certainly by dollars, uh, but also pretty close to the biggest source of growth by percent last year is China. Uh, that will continue to be the case. Why is that? I mean, that, that sounds counterintuitive. You know, China's under pressure. And uh, obviously, if we, if, we, if we listen to uh, some of the rhetoric, you'd think that, that China was on the way down. Actually, China is opening up, right? Ch China is opening up to, to the rest of the, uh, of the world, to the rest of the region in a very substantial way. And, and given that Standard Chartered's role as a connector between the markets in which we operate, obviously one of which is China, uh, that connector role is, is quite valuable for us. So I would expect to continue to see China as a, as a, a real outsized kind of contributor to our growth. Hong Kong as well. Now, Hong Kong's come, coming off of a couple of very tough years, right? 2019 civil disturbances, obviously the pandemic that hit all of us, but then compounded by the national security law and, and some of the the, the the sanctions and other pressures that have hit Hong Kong. It's, it was a tough 2019, 2020 into 21. Hong Kong is now back solidly on its feet. It's good, strong growing business for us. And we expect that that will kick in, obviously both leveraging the China, the China growth, but also in its own right. So that part of the world is still a real driver for us. Bill, you described yourself there as a connector, and I want to touch on something something delicate, and I want to give you the best opportunity to talk about it. I think increasingly it's getting more difficult looking at where the West is going and looking where China is going at the moment. The allegations of genocide coming from the administration, the industrial-scale human rights abuses, they're the allegations coming from the UK government, a place where your bank is listed. Bill, do you ever feel like you have to be a diplomat sometimes as well as a CEO when you operate in China? And what do you think people are missing here. You're a company with a big presence in there. I'm sure you have to be very careful about what you say to maintain a presence there. At the same time, you have these allegations of genocide. Bill, that sounds like a really tough position for a CEO to be in. How do you do it? Well, yeah, I, I, did, uh, I did once in my student days want to be a diplomat. And uh, thankfully, I, I took a different route, mostly because I needed to pay off my, my uh, university student loans. Uh, and banking seemed a good way to do that. Uh, but the, uh, I don't think I'd be a great diplomat, so I won't try to be a diplomat. What I will say is that, that the role that we play is bringing capital together, bringing people together, bringing ideas together uh, from all parts of the world. And we, and we operate in uh, over 60 countries. Uh, through the course of history, some of those countries uh, have been in conflict with others of those countries. Yeah. Uh, some of them have been in conflict with the UK. So uh, I, got one, it, I got one final question. We're going to run out of time here. 
Bill, you guys invented diversity. Standard Charter Bank for decades has lived diversity. What is your strategic diversity mandate that you can teach other executives? I, look, I don't know what we can teach anybody. I know what we've learned ourselves, which is that when you have a broader range of opinions around the table, you serve clients better and you attract better people and you make better decisions. And yet, thankfully, we are in data, as you, as you point out, with you know, because we operate in, in, in so many different countries, we've got a workforce that comes from those countries and we have clients that have very different buying patterns and, and, and in different cycles. Uh, the, the key is to try to harness that and, and bring as much of that to the table as you can at any point in time. I think we do a pretty good job of that. We know we can do better. So uh, I'm not sure we have anything to teach anybody, but we're happy to share our lessons. Bill, five more years is the answer we often get from an old colleague of yours, Jamie Dimon, when we talk about succession ah. and leading the bank. And Bill, I believe you've been there almost seven. Is it seven years in June, Bill? Is that right? It's coming on seven. Are you thinking a little bit about succession now? Are you happy with <clears throat> everything you've done or do you think there's more to be done? I tell you, Jonathan, the day you call me a forever CEO is probably the day I should should head for the door. But no, look, we, we've got a, we've got a task to complete here. Uh, it is not complete, and uh, that's reflected in our share price, but also in our own sense that, that we have more that we can deliver. Uh, I want to get this thing done, and uh, and then hopefully whoever takes over for me will be uh, will, will be will be taking something that's in really in very good shape. Any thoughts about going back to J.P. Morgan? Is that something you'd ever rule out, Bill, in the future? <laughs> I think the likelihood of that is about as low as you could possibly get. As great as that firm is, I don't think they feel that they need builders. Bill, good to catch up, sir. As always, it's good to hear from you. A timely conversation with Bill Winters of Standard Chartered. David Malpass is a president of the World Bank, and we're thrilled that Mr. Malpass could join us uh, this morning. David, I look at the World Bank website. And you modeling growth to slow. How fragile is it right now? You and I have studied Stan Fisher, 1998, and other crises as well. How close to instability in emerging markets are we? Hi, Tom. Good morning. I think that's a big challenge because uh, as, as you slow down, the population growths are still fast in some countries. And the uh, if you're not getting ahead, then the people uh, look at it and say, what's in it for me? And that brings, the, that brings the physical insecurity that we're seeing in some parts of the world. The solution is to grow more and to get higher per capita incomes, uh, as well as of course, health programs, vaccinations, education, uh, all that goes with good development practices. Is the institutional integrity there for you and across the street, the International Monetary Fund? Are these nations listening to you as they struggle with some of the financial challenges they have? So many countries do listen, but I think a big part of the challenge is the global environment. It's, you know, very unequal. People at the lower end of the income scales aren't simply aren't doing well because the wealth is concentrating. And so that's a big problem. You can you can put in good, better policies uh, in your country and still not see much in the way of results. That's a big problem. David, given this backdrop where the recovery has been much slower and more painful in the developing world, how concerning is it that a wall of debt maturities is coming up for a lot of these nations? This is a challenge. You know, it was discussed in the last two years at, by the G20. <laughs> Uh, but frankly, the progress is stalled on that. So as we look at nine, uh, 2022, uh, the the uh, uh, the payments 
from the IDA countries, that's the low-income countries, are going to be $35 billion. Uh, that's the, the payments on principal and interest, which is way beyond the resources of the countries. That creates added challenge because they need the money for other things, like fighting the pandemic. David, how concerning is it that amidst this backdrop, you have seen persistent dollar strength, you have seen persistent inflation in base goods? I mean, basically paint a scenario for us how this transpires over the rest of 2022. We know worldwide that inflation really subtracts from people that are on fixed income or on the bottom end of the income scale, and that's particularly true of developing countries. So as, the, as prices go up, they just don't have enough money for food, for the basics, for, for education and for health. You know, in, in the developing world, the education, because of the school closures, education has really slid right. backwards. That means the ability to read and, and, uh, and write. And so those are concerning. Uh, and that gets us to the, to the end, end point that the, in, if interest rate hikes start, that's going to be really a double whammy. The yeah. inflation and the interest rates uh, are a challenge. I think it would be better if the central banks uh, looked at the capital allocation around the world and looked for better ways to allocate so that not all of the money goes to the biggest corporations. Your previous story was just about Microsoft Cash. Uh, David, you are as qualified as any World Bank president in history to look at, study, and advise on dollar dynamics. Does the World Bank in the poor countries of the world, just take the continent of Africa as one example, how desperate are they for a weak dollar? Uh, the the uh, strong dollar really puts pressure on them because their currencies weaken and then capital doesn't want to flow to them, plus prices go up more than they are in the United States. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't characterize it as desperate for a weak dollar. Uh, what they what benefits everyone is when currencies are stable. And that starts with the dollar. Uh, and long-term stability, I think, is, uh, is the strongest uh, support for development. Uh, so the countries want that. Uh, but right now, as we go into a probable uh, interest rate hiking phase, uh, that adds uh, that adds to the dollar and makes the challenges bigger for the developing countries. As I say, <clears throat> I think the world needs to look at the capital allocation and ask why is so much of the money uh, going to the rich end of the scale? How do we amend that? I mean, it's one thing to comment on it and to identify it. But how are we proactive for a new capital allocation away from buying more Apple shares? You have to think about small businesses. That means floating rate uh, uh, money. That means uh, uh, money at the short end of the curve. But we have this oddity where the, the government uh, is uh, supporting existing businesses, existing people and demand, and not so much the supply side. So that's problem one. And then on the central bank side, uh, they're, they're allocating, they're, they're, you know, they have four tools. They're only using, talking about two tools, the interest rate hikes, that hurts people at the short end of the curve because short interest rates go up first uh, and even more so in developing countries. Uh, and they're also talking about shrinking uh, the or tapering the, the size of the balance sheet. <clears throat> There are two more tools. One is the duration of the central bank holdings, and one is regulatory policy. 
I, I call it post-monetarism. We're not really in a money supply world. We're in a very heavily regulatory world. Right now, it penalizes small businesses. So having an explicit focus by both fiscal and monetary policy that you want to support smaller businesses so they can help the supply chain, uh, I think that's critical and could help uh, worldwide. David, given where we are now, given that these changes will take time to be implemented, do you think that the developing world complex can deal with four rate hikes from the Federal Reserve this year? Uh, it, it's, it's going to be really challenging. We already see it in country after country from the political side. You see it daily in the news. Uh, I think it would help if the central bank said what the strategy is. Uh, you, you know, I, I really think they should be looking at the duration of their assets and saying they'll stop buying so many uh, assets at the long end. Uh, and have more of their mix uh, be capital favorable, small business favorable. That helps developing countries. Mr. Malpass, thank you so much for joining us. David Malpass, World Bank President. Bank of America adjusting to what they see out there from sea to shining sea. Savita Subramanian joins us now, U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy at Bank of America Security. Savita, I want to go to your latest research note where you dovetail in nicely the Subramanian Misery Index. When Brian Moynihan wakes up every morning, he looks at the Subramanian Misery Indicator. And the reality is you look at consumer discretionary and you look at industrial and those are two big, important sectors linked directly in to rising labor costs. Absolutely. These are two of the most labor-intensive sectors of the S&P 500. But oddly enough, these are the two sectors where analysts are forecasting all-time peaks in margins by the third quarter of this year, which just doesn't really jive with what we're seeing in terms of tightness in the labor market, in terms of, as you pointed out, compensation expenses in almost every industry starting to see really strong upward pressure. Um, you know, I, I think that something's got to give this year, and it might be margins. That's where we think that analysts are too, uh, too optimistic, if you will. Um, so if you think about the corporate misery indicator, um, this is an indicator that we use to track whether margins are starting to see a squeeze and, and whether earnings are actually going to fall. And so far, so good. So, so far, we've seen prices generally keep up with costs, um, although this quarter we're starting to see that fray a little bit. And, and we've seen unit volume sales uh, increase. So those three factors are the ones to watch. And when it starts to get problematic is when prices increase too much, demand starts to deteriorate and costs still creep higher. And that's what we're worried about as we move into, uh, you know, subsequent quarters this year. I think the good news is that a lot of the sectors in the S&P 500 have become very labor light. Like, for example, you know, technology, even industrials, a lot of these sectors have automated a lot of that labor away. But there are still pockets of the market that we think look dangerous from that perspective. Saviti did some wonderful work over the last 12 months on the labour intensity of the overall S&P 500, the change of it over the last, not just few years, but over the last decades as well. Yes. I'm just wondering then, the concentration of that, you've worked through that. Work with me at the index level. What's the biggest yes. challenge at the index level? You're at 4,600 year-end on the S&P. What gets us there? We are. We might get there today. <laughs> um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I mean, here's the thing. I think that it's hard to be long 
the entire market when you've got all of the positive forces that have been playing through, be it easy monetary policy, easy fiscal policy, super low interest rates, um, you know, relatively healthy uh, balance sheets of consumers, corporates. You've got, um, you know, strong earnings acceleration off of a, you know, global pandemic low. All of those factors are basically slowing down. So I'm not bearish on the S&P 500, but I think this is going to be a year where we're going to hit that 4,600 a bunch of times, and you're going to want to pick your spots. The way to pick where to invest this year is very, very simple. Look for free cash flow. This is the most important factor in an environment of tightening monetary policy. In our quant work, and you know I'm a math person, so in our quant work, we've back-tested all of these different strategies of investing, and we found that free cash flow to enterprise value is the single best way to pick a stock <clears throat> during periods, of, during the first year of the Fed tightening cycle. So create a Bloomberg screen, sort all your companies by free cash flow to enterprise value, and that would be the way I would look for opportunities. And I think what's interesting, if you give me one more minute on this, is that when we saw that tech route the other week, it was just maybe, a, I can't keep track of time, maybe a week ago, we saw a massive downturn in the, in the NASDAQ. And, uh, and then miraculously, midday, the free cash flow opportunities within that tech benchmark grew attractive enough for investors to start to leg back into tech. So I think that's the type of market we're gonna be in where you have to really watch these factors Look for free cash flow generation and just be nimble. Um, volatility is great for, for markets, for active managers. And I think that's where we're going to be this year. Which is the reason why I was a little bit confused about your call that small cap stocks may outperform large cap stocks, considering the fact that a number of different surveys, at least, have shown people are worried about their margins more than large companies. They're worried about them handling supply chain disruptions and labor shortages. Can you explain why you're more bullish on these smaller firms? Absolutely. 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 And I mean, the bottom line is that from a valuation perspective, small caps are trading at a 25% discount to large caps. Historically, on average, they trade at a 2% premium. You're right, Lisa. There's a lot of stuff going on in the small cap sector that could be negative for margins. But my view is that's priced in. Where it's not priced in is in consumer companies and in industrial companies where these you know, larger companies are trading at close to all-time highs in terms of valuation. So I think you're right that small caps aren't generally um, you know, that great in a labor inflation environment, although the work from our small cap team and Jill Hall has actually indicated that small caps generally outperform large caps during periods of CapEx acceleration, uh, you know, pick up in inflation, even the early stages of a Fed hiking cycle. So I think a lot of these things are coming into play. And then on top of that, the gravy is small caps are super cheap right now. We haven't seen this type of evaluation discrepancy since you know, 2000. And if you had bought the Russell in 2000 and shorted the S&P, you would have made a lot of alpha over the next 10 years. Interesting call, Savita. Our best to you and the team, as always. Wonderful. Savita Subramanian there mm -hmm. of Bank of America. Let's get straight to this bond market debate, this conversation with Kathy Jones, the chief fixed income strategist at Charles Schwab. Kathy, a wonderful friend of this program. Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm trying to work out after how much work we've already done year to date, adding interest rate hikes into this market, whether this is the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning of a conversation about higher interest rates. 
Yeah, you know, I think we are um, discounting a lot. Uh, we're looking more like three rate hikes, not four rate hikes. But I think the focus really ought to be on the balance sheet. You know, that was the surprise that came out of the minutes of the FOMC meeting that not only were they poised to raise rates, but they were poised to use the balance sheet as well. And I, and I don't think the market's really quite figured out how exactly the Fed's going to do that. Um, they haven't really revealed much to us, but that to me tells me how much they're going to try to maneuver the long end of the curve while raising rates at the short end. So I think, you know, three rate hikes, not four this year, but maybe an earlier start to the runoff of the balance sheet, maybe as early as June or July. And that's going to have, um, I think, implications for the markets. Kathy, very importantly, whether you look at the spread market, 210 or some odd spread you follow every day, or you look at the actual nominal yield or, frankly, the real yield, if you're having a cup of coffee with Liz Ann Saunders and she turns to you and says, where's the pivot point? Where's the fixed income yield point where things change? What do you respond? Oh, boy. You know, I would say if we get, you know, real interest rates into positive territory, um, <clears throat> that probably is something that uh, would be a pivot point for the market. But I think that if that happens, particularly if the short short term real rates move up, um, we get a, a pretty good size flattening of the yield curve. And that's something the markets have to deal with. Can you predict an inverted curve? I mean, do you have enough information yet to go to an inversion where the two-year yield, is it a higher yield than the 10-year yield? No, I don't think so. And I think that's where the balance sheet comes in. I think that there are ways that the Fed can probably use the balance sheet to avoid an inversion of the yield curve. So I, we're not forecasting that now or for this year or even for next year. I think that that remains to be seen. That wouldn't be our base case uh, forecast. But, you know, it's a risk to the market. You see the, the back end of the curve already flattening out uh, as we talk about Fed rate hikes that haven't even materialized yet. Although it's not just a Fed rate hike that's going to lead to the higher base rate on that two-year yield. I was reading a Goldman Sachs note uh, as well as Morgan Stanley talking about how much of a rate hike the runoff of the balance sheet will count for. In other words, is it going to be uh, necessarily four rate hikes, the equivalent of that with the balance sheet? roll-off taken into effect. What's your view on that? I mean, is this a time to buy short-term rates, or do you think that it's appropriately priced based on that outlook of the balance sheet? Yeah, I think the short end of the curve is probably appropriately priced, um, and I think there's a little bit more room on the long end, but we're actually telling people to start legging into a little bit more duration. You know, we've been short duration for forever, it seems like, uh, for the last couple of years. And we're actually advocating starting to move into a little bit more duration at these levels, because I think the Fed is going to have more difficulty hiking rates rapidly than, than the market believes. And, and we've got slowdown in the economy coming you know, because of fiscal policy changes. We're already seeing some of the rollover in, in certain areas of the manufacturing sector. Uh, you mentioned China slowing down. I think that the expectation is very high for the Fed to hike rates very rapidly. And uh, I don't think that they'll be able to live up to that in 2022. Kathy, awesome. As always, it's good to see you. Let's catch up soon. Kathy Jones there of Charles Schwab. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.